All right, this is a exciting. This is an exciting lesson we just finished with our last lesson, discussing how Israel was finally led out of slavery and their bondage to uh, to Pharaoh and to Egypt, and now God has brought them through with the miraculous uh, partings of the Red Sea. They go through the wilderness and they're beginning to complain a little bit, and we saw that that's going to be some pretty bad foreshadowing of a lot of what's to come in the journeys through the wilderness. But God nevertheless provides for them miraculously with bread from heaven, the manna, the supernatural water from the rock, which we all pointed typologically is uh, points to Christ, as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians. And now we are continuing our story of salvation history with the Israelites finally getting to Mount Sinai. So we are, we are in Exodus chapter 19. And what I'd like to do, um, this first kind of part is really the forging of the covenant at Mount Sinai. They've arrived at the mountain and through the meteorship of Moses, God establishes this covenant with them. But let's begin by reading verses one through six, and then we'll unpack this a little bit uh, before the the covenant is actually ratified in chapter 24. Uh, These first few chapters are really important. So let's read chapter 19, verse one. On the third new moon, after the sons of Israel had gone forth out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And when they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, they encamped in the wilderness, and there Israel encamped before the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, Tell the sons of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. All right. These verses are pretty dynamite. And if you have a Bible, I always I always tell my students, highlight, underline, block off, circle, whatever it is, verses 5 through 6 especially. Now, verse 4, you might have caught the whole eagle's wings thing. That's definitely uh, the origin of that song on eagle's wings. I'm not going to sing it for you. But just in case you were wondering, everyone points that out. And yes, there is the, the reference of the eagle's wings. It's a really beautiful image of how God takes his people and bears them out, to, brings them out to himself. I, I love that. I brought you to myself. There's a lot we could say about how even in First John, uh, John says, we did not love God first. He loved us first. Anyway, there's a lot we could we could say there, but these verses 5 through 6 are really, really important. Because back in chapter 4, verse 22, if you remember, this is when God said that Israel was his firstborn son. Thus you shall say to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. And we discussed that many chap- 15 chapters um, previously, and we discussed how the role of the firstborn son is to be a role model and a leader, a spiritual leader with that spiritual responsibility to guide all the other children into a proper worship of God, right? Uh, Because at this point in salvation history, it's the fathers and the firstborn sons who have this priestly role, this spiritual authority. Well, we see this, that concept being further developed right here in chapter 19, verses 5 through 6. The role of the firstborn son, what Israel is supposed to do is to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is how Israel is going to bring all other nations back to God. 
Israel will be God's special possession among all peoples for this task. If you want to think of it as a mission statement, <laughs> I always got to say that. It's like, this is Israel's mission statement. This is what they're called to do. They're called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a nation set apart. That's what holy means, kadosh, to be set apart from all other nations precisely to be that spiritual um, role model, that spiritual leader to teach all other nations who the true God of the universe is. So that's that's their mission statement. That's what it's all about. And that's what God wants to do here at Mount Sinai is to ratify, to forge this covenant with them. And through through the vocation, through the, uh, the covenant here, give them this vocation, this identity as God's special possession. And therefore they would in turn go and evangelize all nations. Okay. So that's why I say verses five through six are really, really important because this is what Israel has been called to do. Okay. Now, of course, the people all say in verse eight, yeah, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And so the Lord says, I'm going to come to you in a thick cloud, get ready, consecrate yourselves, uh, and be prepared for this, this covenant ratifying ceremony. And it's pretty dynamite. In verse 16 and following, uh, on the morning of the third day, there is thunder and lightning and thick cloud upon the mountain and trumpet blast. So all the people in the camp trembled, right? And it goes on and says, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And the smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln. The whole mountain great, uh, quaked greatly. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. This is a this is a pretty crazy theophany. If you remember from the burning bush, a theophany is a manifestation or an appearance of God in some form. And here God is descending upon Mount Sinai. And there's the cloud and the trumpet blast, the smoke, the fire, earthquakes. And, and the people really tremble. They soil themselves. In fact, later on at the end of chapter 20, uh, verses 18 and 19, it says, When all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and stood afar off. And they said, you speak to us, we will hear you, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. So you can imagine how tremendous, how powerful, um, impactful this whole moment is. God is, again, he's not some distant God. He He's coming down in the midst of his people and he is all powerful, but he's all powerful and he's all loving and he wants to bring the people into a covenant with him. So this is chapter 19, everyone getting ready, that the priests are beginning to serve at the, at the end of chapter 19, and now they're going to start to, to dictate the terms of the covenant. Uh, and I'll summarize a little bit later when we get to chapter 24, after we talk about these Ten Commandments, I'll summarize just kind of the steps of the covenant by way of reminder, but suffice it to say right now, chapter 20 through 23 really become the terms of a covenant between God and Israel. This is like the, the agreement clause, right? What each party uh, swears to do. God on his part swears to make God, Israel his own special possession and make them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's what he promises, right? That's what he agrees to. Now, what about Israel? Israel now is going to swear and promise to uphold the law. They're going to promise to live virtuous, holy lives. And this is expressed through obedience to the Ten Commandments first. So that's what we have. That's what we find in chapter 20. We find the, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments forming the agreement. What, what uh, Israel says and swears they're going to uphold. Really because they become God, the family rules. That's a, a common way that they, in which they're described. The commandments are a response to God in his covenant and make up the family rules. No family on the face of the planet, if it is a family that is trying to bring peace and order and love, it, every family has rules. Okay, 
I have rules as a husband that I have to follow, my wife, the children have rules, and when we all come together, there's peace and there's harmony. Well, that's a good way to kind of look at the Ten Commandments. They are the family rules that God gives to us in order that there would be peace and there would be harmony. Because today, culture hates rules, right? The culture hates the commandments. The commandments are just a bunch of thou shalt nots, thou shalt nots. God is a, like a big killjoy, right? He doesn't want us to have any fun, and he restricts our actions uh, arbitrarily. And, and that's certainly not the truth. Anybody with an ounce of honesty realizes when you look at the Ten Commandments, they're there to bring us peace and fulfillment and joy. Because the reality is we do not want to fall back into slavery to sin. And when we observe the Ten Commandments, we remain free to worship God. Because if we're shackled by sin, then we are not free to love as we were created to love. So observing the commandments maintains the relationship that we have with God. Observing the commandments keeps the covenant that we have with God healthy. And in fact, this is exactly how the church teaches the commandments. In paragraph 2061, it says, the commandments take on their full meaning within the covenant. According to scripture, man's moral life has all its meaning in and through the covenant. That's really important. If we taught morality as um, in, in the context of a covenant relationship, a family bond that we have with God, as opposed to a bunch of arbitrary laws, it's going to make a lot more sense. Because sin is not just breaking a rule. Sin is breaking a relationship, as we're going to see later on with Israel at the end of this lesson. Sin breaks a relationship. So when we understand the commandments that God gives to us so we can uphold the covenant of love that we have with him, then it makes a lot more sense and it would ideally motivate us to observe the commandments because we don't want to hurt the person that we love. We don't want to hurt God. And that's what contrition really is. When we're sorry for sin, we're sorry because we hurt God or we hurt someone else through our, our words, our deeds, our actions. Okay, so I think that's really, really important to keep in mind. That's why the Ten Commandments are taught here in the context of the covenant. All right, cool. So moving on then to, to understand these ten, ten Commandments, they're often known as the Decalogue, or literally means the Ten Words, and it's binding on everyone everywhere now this is really important because a lot of people say oh you know god gave the israelites the ten commandments and you know we at least in america kind of have a judeo-christian tradition uh, but they're not binding on other people elsewhere of other religions and that's just a bunch of hogwash the ten commandments the ten words basically summarize the natural law that we are all born with when we are born our spiritual dna if you want to call it that we have these ten commandments inscribed on our hearts, on our beings, because the Ten Commandments summarize perfectly, thus 10 is the number of perfection, totality, completion, right? So the Ten Commandments perfectly summarize how we are to act and behave in regards to God who created us, in regards to each other um, as siblings. If we're going to see, think of God as our Heavenly Father, we think of each other as siblings in our Lord, right? So the natural law is written on our hearts, but because of sin... It's, it, so it's what sin does is it darkens our intellects and it weakens our will, as St. Thomas Aquinas says. So uh, it's really hard to sometimes understand perfectly what the law requires of us so that way we can be happy and fulfilled and peaceful. And even if we do understand it in part, our wills are so weak that we're not able to follow it. So what God does here is he inscribes it on stone 
to kind of re, um, re-emphasize the law that we're all born with. And it has another, a couple of other symbolic reasons as well. Number one, inscribing, when, God, when the Lord writes the Ten Commandments with his own finger, the scripture says, right? He writes the commandments himself. It symbolizes the permanence of the natural law for all eternity. That's what the stone conveys to us. The law inscribed into stone symbolizes the permanence of the natural law forever and ever. Like I said, it's binding on everyone and everywhere. doesn't matter if it was 5,000 years ago or today, if you're in the continents of the east or the west or north or south, it doesn't even matter. They're binding on everyone. And then it also symbolizes, however, the hard-heartedness of the Israelites and by extension, all nations. Like I said, sin has darkened our intellects, it's weakened our wills, and we have become hard-hearted. And God is trying to inscribe into our hard hearts His law, the law that will make us truly happy and fulfilled. All right. So there's a lot we could say about the commandments. Believe you me, we have the whole like a section, a whole quarter of the catechism on the natural law. Uh, in the Ten Commandments. But suffice it to say right now, if this is God's family rules, then we can think of the first three commandments that in, in reference to our love and our duty to God. The first three commandments reflect how we are to love God as our Heavenly Father. Commandments 4 through 10 reflect and refer to our love and duty to our neighbors, or you could think of each other as siblings. Okay, If we're part of the family of God, then in Christ we are all siblings. So this is actually really important because if you remember in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39, Jesus said the two greatest commandments were, quoting Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And then he also quoted Leviticus 19, which says, love your neighbor as yourself. So if someone were to say, okay, well, that makes sense. Well, how do I love God? Well, that's commandments 1 through 3. And like, okay, well, how do I love my neighbor as myself? Well, that's commandments 4 through 10. And in loving our neighbor, in loving our spiritual siblings, we love God. We love God in them. So the greatest commandments, loving God, loving neighbor, are really summarized here in these commandments, giving us specificity on how we're supposed to do that. All right? So chapter 20 is super important. It forms the first part of the terms of the covenant, how the people are to live lives of harmony and peace with God and with each other. And then chapters 21 through 23 are a whole slew of different temporary laws that really are given, they're, they're meant to govern Israel as a nation then and there. All right, these laws are temporary. So the Ten Commandments are binding on everyone everywhere, whether you lived in Israel during this period of history or whether you were a Gentile, um, you're in Babylon or you're later on, you're a Greek or an American or whatever, they're binding everywhere. However, these laws in 21 through 23 are temporary. They govern Israel as a nation so long as it exists as a nation. And keep that in mind as well, because as we go on in the next couple of lectures and we discuss additional laws that are given to Israel, they're going to have to understand them in that context. They're temporary laws given to Israel to govern them then and there for specific pedagogical reasons. So stay tuned. And we're going to, of course, be looking at all of that in great detail. All right, so in summary here, as I say in the notes, chapter 20 is known as the words, right? The 10 words, the Decalogue, the 10 commandments. Chapters 21 through 23 are known as the ordinances of the Lord. Both of them together form, as I was saying, the terms of the covenant oath that Israel will swear to uphold. 
So again, I repeat, God swears on his part, he will make Israel his own special possession and make of them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And Israel, the people, swear that they're going to uphold chapters 20 through 23, the words and the ordinances. And they say this multiple times. Yes, everything that the Lord says, we will do. That's chapter 24, uh, verse 3, and in other contexts as well. Whatever the Lord says, we're going to do. So they freely choose to uphold it. All right, and that brings us to this next section here, the ratification of the covenant itself. 